if I have an objective or an agenda in doing this research and in having conversations like the one we're having today, it's to achieve that balance. We can do exactly what you said. We can do the bulletproof reporting, or we can write to the standards of the journal, or we can communicate with people outside of our profession. But let's not lose sight of all the richness that we have here and all the difference. And there's a reason why I think UNESCO has designated Chinese medicine as a world treasure, right? We are a treasure, and we need to cultivate that. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. You know, with Chinese medicine, we often use the metaphors of the royal court and how that reflects the nature of heaven and earth. But really, how many of us want to live in that kind of a feudal society? And why do we use this kind of languaging to talk about our medicine and our work when in our everyday lives, we have disregard for royalty and see heads of the military as violent, corrupt, and war-loving, and see the ministers of government bureaucracies like that of agriculture or commerce as thieves and greedy scoundrels. We don't live the metaphors we use to describe our work, do we? Maybe it's time to update the language of Chinese medicine, or at the very least, recognize that we might be using ancient perspectives and language as a kind of fetish. So how do we make sense in our modern moment? of the principles that have come down to us over the course of centuries, culture, and language. And especially if we're talking to patients and trying to convey to them what we're doing with our treatments or have a suggestion for their health that could be useful, using the old language and images could result on a good day of your patients thinking you're quaint to on a bad day having them think you're racist, a sexist jerk, or some kind of science-denying weirdo. Perhaps it's time to stop talking about the liver as the general and start talking about its function as being something like Amazon.com, that it's about the storing, distributing, and timing of things in the body. All is well when things flow smoothly and everything is delivered in a timely and appropriate fashion, but if there are backups, blockages, or delays then, well, you already know how that goes. When things get bogged up, there's anger, frustration, sarcastic rage, and a short-sightedness for the complexity of delivering resources. Instead of talking about the heart as being the emperor with all the privilege and corruption that usually goes with that position, how about taking that outdated metaphor, which is more than a bit tattered for our time, and instead talk about a sense of connected knowing that calls one toward a greater sense of congruence, responsibility, and loving connection towards others. Perhaps it is the minister of grains that is most in need of an upgrade, especially given the tremendous amount of metabolic troubles that we see in our world today. We need a way to frame our food as being more than a mysterious process of separating the clear and the turbid and for sure to be more inclusive than the reductionist view that condenses our nutrition into checklists of nutrient, both macro and micro. Maybe involving ecology here, how we live within interconnected systems, and how our nutrition is ecology in action, and that we are connected to the world through what we eat. I suspect 
If we listen closely to our patients, as we strive to understand their experience for themselves, it's possible to hear them use metaphors and descriptions that not only guide us toward a treatment that would be helpful for them, but also gives us the opportunity to hear how our medicine is expressing itself in our current modern moment. I recently had a patient with a troublesome cancer describe themselves as navigating, which got my attention because usually people say they are fighting. And trust me, this person is doing all they can to be here in this world, but navigating is not the same as fighting. And as is so often the case in clinic, when I hear something unexpected, it gets my attention. And it makes me wonder about how our patients make meaning from their experience. We have this idea handed to us from conventional medicine that practitioners can stand in a reliable and objective place and from there see clearly what needs to be done. East Asian medicine has us viewing our patients not from the outside, but from within the interlocking and entwined relationships and systems of which there are a part. And here's a question. How do we capture all of that with our case notes? We're going to get into this in a moment with Sarah Rifkin. But first, I've got a few messages from the folks that make it possible for you to enjoy these podcast conversations. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. 
please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Sarah has had a long-time interest in history and the function of case studies in the teaching and learning of Chinese herbal medicine, and she's keen on how we describe our work in the written world, in part to chronicle and chart what we do with our patients, but also to use it as a teaching method and to capture something of the clinical encounter that doesn't neatly fit into a soap note. Let's get into this. Sarah Rivkin, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for talking to me today. I am delighted to talk to you because we're going to talk about case studies. This is like the favorite thing for acupuncturists, like noodle over stuff in clinic, tell each other stories, learn something. Yeah, it's great. I mean, a good case study is like reading a novel or a novella, and you get to call it work, and you learn something at the same time. So go figure. I have read case studies that read like a detective novel. Mm-hmm. The Stories of Mallory Chen by Steve Clavey. <laughs> have you read those? I have not, but I do know that historically there was a lot of cross-pollination between writing of case studies and other literary genres. And at times in history, the same people were writing medical case studies as were writing true crime and detective novels and they called them stories of the strange, so they were like ghost stories, all of that. So there's a long tradition of that. Okay. I did not know that. I brought up Steve Clay because I'm a fan of The Lantern, and he always writes a little shaoyao section. It's a story of the fat monk and this guy who's like trying to get enlightenment. And there's usually a case in it where something about Chinese medicine. And then he did a whole series on Mallory Chan. And it was a detective story, 
but it was Chinese medicine. It's exactly what you said. Mm -hmm. It read like a novel, and it was so much fun to read. And did you learn something, and did you remember it better than if you'd read a dry case with none of that stuff in it? Absolutely. And so why is it that we write case studies that are so dry and boring? Well, not everybody who is writing case studies these days is really interested in sort of writing a more in a more literary style. I think some of it is a little bit aspirational, or I just read, what's her name, Rhonda Chang, mm. her book about Chinese medicine masquerading as E. Yeah. And she talks about self-colonialism in Chinese medicine or East Asian medicine, right? That this whole idea of being professional and being modern, she's talking about it specifically in Chinese medicine, but there are a lot of people who talk about it in general as being sort of a an artifact of colonialism and this idea that being modern is being neutral and being scientific. I don't know, maybe we're a little bit ashamed to be different. All right, there's a lot to dig into with that. The piece about being neutral, that gets my attention. And it gets my attention because when I think about just being in a clinic and sitting with a patient, I find if I can abide in some sort of sense of neutrality, then I am more open to hearing what the patient might actually have to say. And so I kind of come down on the side of neutrality. I'm curious to know from your perspective how that might get in the way. I'm not against neutrality, but I think we all have a bias. And so you have to start from the assumption that there is some sort of bias. Maybe neutrality is a goal. Certainly, this is something I've dug in a lot to the literature of, of narrative medicine mm. from a Western medicine standpoint, and that's something that's talked about there as well. We can't just sweep our differences under the rug, right? And we bring to the clinical encounter our own personal and cultural baggage, and that's something that we need to grapple with both in our interactions with our patients and also in how we might write about them. The piece about being neutral, like not involved, like somehow an objective observer of the situation, I understand that our modern culture preferences that. You know, and there's a place for it in certain kinds of research. And at the same time, we can never not bring who we are and what we are into the situation. There's no way to do the work that we do, probably no way to do medicine at all when you come right down to it, where the person who's doing the treatment, whatever treatment that is, isn't somehow involved in being interactive in what's unfolding. You can't take yourself out of it. Arguably, we can be better at what we do for recognizing that. Yes. Tell me more about that. How can we be better and how can we bring that in without bringing our biases, our preferences, and our wishful thinking? I don't know that I have an answer to that. The only thing I can think of is that by being more authentically who and what we are, we are aligned better with our intention. And that sort of integration is going to make us better at what we do. Mm. Tell me more about that. What's that look like? Now you're asking me the hard questions, right? It's my job. <laughs> well, I think when we met in person, Michael, I shared with you something that I found in the research for this project, and that was a quote from the Zapatista Liberation Movement in Mexico that I really think I want on a t-shirt. And that quotation was, because we are equal, I can be different. 
So I've been thinking a lot about that in the context of Chinese or East Asian medicine. And in terms of how we try to pretend that we're Western physicians or clinicians, or we borrow their language, we borrow their format of writing, what's at the heart of that? Is there a sense that we have a little bit of an inferiority complex, so we're afraid to be ourselves? This is just something that's been on my mind recently. I think about writing, and I remember being in high school, college too, for that matter, and there's whatever book they're giving you. That's like, this is the book on grammar and format, blah, blah, blah. And this is how you have to write. You have to write using this format. And what I found that did for me was effectively stop me from writing anything that might have heart and guts in it. Mm. Never worked for me. It wasn't until many years later where I just decided I was going to write what I felt that I noticed that I actually could write what was inside of me. And it's not uncommon. You go through any schooling, any system, they've got their way of this is how we do it. And if you want to be one of us, this is how it gets done. And so you've got like the American Psychological Association has their way of writing up research or case reports or whatever. And then there's certainly the medical type of research writing, extremely dry, almost impossible to understand unless you're a member of that community. And you're not going to get published if you don't follow the structure of what the system is asking for. So here we come along as acupuncturists. And well, what are we? Well, we're medical practitioners. So what should our writing look like? Well, maybe it's, you grab a model. Maybe it should look like what these other people are doing. Mm -hmm. But if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is we can write. Yeah about our medicine in a way that might even be fun to read. Well, it's interesting. You telling the story of your experience as a writer. I have children. They're now teenagers. But I remember when they were learning to write. And I think sort of the trend in teaching writing these days, not if you really want to encourage people to write, let them write in a voice that's authentic to who they are. Mm. So if your six-year-old son just wants to write about blowing things up, don't censor him. That's how he starts to learn how to write and find his voice. Mm -hmm. There's an aspect of this that I think may carry through life into adulthood and perhaps into professional writing as well. I mean, we all have to be socialized and we all have to follow the rules and we can't do the same things we did as we were six, but maybe there's an element of that that has to stay. And interestingly, from having dug a little, as I mentioned, into the world of narrative medicine, that's very much the trend, is not forcing physicians or clinicians to leave all their cultural baggage at the door, bringing in the patient's voice, allowing people to speak authentically in order to really get the best information and the best expression of what has happened and what the patient's experience of illness is, what the practitioner's experience is, to kind of let all that be there. And it's interesting to me as sort of these larger social trends seem to be going toward more inclusivity, more centers of authority, a recognition that this there's only one way to write, there's only one way to speak, there's only one way to be is self-colonialism, as Rhonda Chang says, byproduct of all these ideas we have about what's science and what's modernity. And it's interesting to me that within our profession, we're going more toward that 
in the past 20 years with the stricter guidelines for acupuncture reporting and the care guidelines for case reports, we're very much going toward this format that is we're trying to out the medical people in terms of how we write while they're trying to get a little bit more touchy-feely and culturally sensitive. So it's just interesting to me. Well, it's fascinating. And I want to get into the research that you've been doing here in a moment. And I want to talk about narrative medicine because I don't know really much about it other than I just heard you describe it to some degree. So I want to dig into that. I just want to stick a pin in that. What I want to say first is if we're going to be involved with the conventional system, taking insurance, doing the different things that let us get third-party payments, there's a system out there and that system is going to ask you to do and fill out the paperwork and communicate in the way that they want to be communicated with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some real benefits to that. You can help more people. There's all this push for Medicare. Some people really want that. There are ways that our work and our medicine can touch this larger system, maybe help more people, but the price tag is the way that we write and talk. Mm. So there's that. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that. The other thing is, Yes, the beauty of our medicine is we get to bring all of us to it. We get to invite our patients, all parts of them, to come to it. And we can talk about it any way we want when it's between us, when we're not connected to that system. And I really want to dig into that. And I really want to hear about this narrative medicine because the process itself sounds healing. Yeah. One thing I think that I always come back to in trying to talk about, and I'll explain narrative medicine as best I can, but you're making me think of something else that I want to mention first. And so when I'm trying to talk to people about what we do, right? And I feel like this is a challenge that we all have in clinic. Your patient says, what's going on here? What are you doing? How does this work? Or you're trying to communicate with other health professionals. How do you describe what you do? And I keep coming back to something I learned in sort of linguistics class 101 in college, which was this Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. So it's the idea that every culture has its own language and this really intimate link between language and culture, that language connotes worldview or denotes a worldview. And so this, I find, is sometimes a way in to say to people, my first question will be, do you speak another language? And particularly if they say, oh, yes, I also speak Spanish or I speak Chinese or I speak German or what have you. And I say, if you were to explain the same thing to someone in that other language you speak and in English, would you say it exactly the same way? Or would you say it kind of differently because each language comes from a different culture and as such has a different set of associations? So That is often a way for me that I have found when I talk to highly educated people, be they my patients or colleagues outside of my profession or my family members or whoever it is, to get them to say, oh, okay, so this language, this medicine is from a different culture, so its language is going to sound different. And that's not unscientific. Wait a minute. Hang on. Let's not gloss over that. It does sound unscientific. It's not scientific. Yeah. That's true. Right. Or it's part of the challenge that we have. Pre-scientific? I don't know. But what I do know is it's not scientific. Right. But it's a language, our, the way that the language or the jargon that's used in our practice 
is the product of having arisen out of a different time and place. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. And for a long time with many iterations as well. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I don't try to translate. You know, certain things are hard to translate. Certain things you just have to describe them or you have to use the words or the language that you would normally use. And in writing, maybe that means that there's a footnote there with quite a lengthy explanation of what it is. But it's like some of these terms that we've decided are are untranslatable, right? I mean, you can sort of translate what she is, but it's better if someone has a minute, it's better to actually sit down and try to explain to them what it is. Agreed. Yeah, something they just don't. Translate Yang Ming. Right. Good luck. So it gets tricky because we do live in a world that preferences the scientific. Yeah. Again, if we want to interact with the systems that might give us third-party reimbursements, we got to speak some science. Yep. And I'm grateful every day for these for these modern case reports that get published in peer-reviewed journals. Because whenever I have, almost every day I'm doing a PubMed search to see if something has been written about or studied. When I get a patient say, is acupuncture any good for tennis elbow or something like that? I will always go to those studies. But it is a trade-off. I mean, I think that's the great thing about our conversation and how I'd like to open it up to a larger conversation is we need to conform to these standards knowing full well what we're doing, right? And that we're making a choice to use the language of the dominant culture, that we're making a choice to do this and to bridge because we want to be understood, but also to be aware that there are some trade-offs there and that what we have is valuable. Well, I'm also, again, keenly struck with the idea that you could write a little novelette. We could write a short story. Mm-hmm. You could write something that's engaging, entertaining, and phenomenally instructive all at the same time that would not fit the rubric of air quote science but it sure does fit the rubric of medicine well freud famously said this the case studies i write or the cases i write should read like novellas which is another quote i had up on my board while i was writing yeah and i've been reading i translated a bunch of cases from a doctor named fan jonglin and his cases are really so instructive They have so many narrative aspects to them. 
and they have that story-like quality. I color-coded one of his cases. He'll take a break in the middle of the case between the patient's second and third visit. I'm thinking of specifically of a case I just included in something I'm writing. And he'll spend many, many characters using it as a jumping off point to talk about the relationship between the heart and the kidney. Oh, that's great. But he also weaves in all of these details, historical details, personal details about the patient that really make you remember it. This case that I'm thinking of, the patient was a film director, and he wrote the doctor this very flowery letter at the end, talking about how he's been through snow and gales and storms, and he still hasn't had a relapse. And Fan Zhonglin keeps in all his language that really sounds like a novel or a short story. Well, and I love, too, how he takes a case and then brings out this piece of Chinese medicine. This is illustrative of the heart and the kidney, for like you just said. As we're having this conversation, I'm remembering a book of case studies I got when I lived in Taiwan. It was a Japanese doctor. I don't remember the name right now. I loved the cases. And I loved the cases because he was very personal about his work and his thinking. He was wildly revealing to the point where I remember reading one where he decided to give the patient some kind of formula. And then he spent the next two days like not sleeping and fretting and wondering, oh my God, did I do the right thing? Mm -hmm. We all know that story. This is a very famous doctor. And he's writing to you about his personal doubts of the case as part of the case and all the reasons why he might have been wrong. And then it turns out that the patient did okay. And at the end, he says, yes. And so I discovered that this formula actually is good for this problem. But you got to see everything that was going through his mind. Mm -hmm. We rarely do that in the cases that we write. There was a case that Sharon Weizenbaum translated and has on her blog, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of the doctor, but I've used that as an example of this as well, about a doctor who meets a young man on a boat trip. Mm. And the young man's really sick. And do you know this case? And, and the family comes to the doctor, I think he's still a medical student, and says, can you treat our son? And he's a textbook Daqing Long Tong presentation. And the doctor gives him Daqing Long Tong, but he's missing a couple of ingredients. And he forgets to tell the patient's family when to stop the formula. Mm. And he goes back to school and he realizes he's made all these mistakes. And then a year later, he meets the patient's family and it turns out the young man died because he made these mistakes. And then the doctor goes back or the medical student who went on to become this famous doctor goes back and he talks to his own teachers about, oh my goodness, I killed this kid. What did I do wrong? And they pick him apart and tell him, well, you left out these couple of ingredients. So it's not really Dutching Long Tong. And you didn't tell them to stop the formula. And these things are really important. And after reading that case, you as a reader, you're never going to forget. These are very hard-won lessons. They're hard-won lessons, and they really show the heart of who we are. Yeah. Tell me more about this research. Yeah. So I think I mentioned my relationship with Sharon Weizenbaum, and I fell in love with cases through studying with her. My undergraduate degree was in literature, and I had encountered cases in the master's degree level of my education, but they weren't really very good. They were kind of contrived 
And I even remember that the first translation of the Jingwei Yaore that we were using when I was in school did have cases in it. And they were set in smaller type as if the book designer were saying, well, you know, if you get around to reading it, take a look at this case at the end, right? Mm -hmm. They clearly were of lesser importance than the the primary text. Mm -hmm. And I studied with Sharon and she was bringing in cases like the story of the medical student on the boat. And all of a sudden I thought, oh gosh, these are really great stories. And from there, a colleague of mine and I, we were both studying with Sharon, went on to design a case-based learning program for acupuncturists who hadn't studied herbs before, but they were learning herbs. Because in New York State, where we are, you can practice with just acupuncture. You don't need the herbal piece to be licensed. Mm -hmm. But these were practitioners who wanted to get herbs as well. And so we piloted this program. We did a couple iterations of it, of doing case-based learning. And my colleague taught them herbs and formulas. And then I went out and found case studies and walked them through. And we really picked apart these case studies to understand the herbs and formulas. And this was just such a wonderful experience. Students learned really well. They were very well prepared for clinic. And that became sort of the spark for my doctoral research. So I then went back to to SEAM, to the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine. And they were kind enough to let me do more sort of historical research rather than designing a clinical trial, which is what a lot of my colleagues were doing. And so my research there was on the history of case studies and also on how case studies are used and how they function. So that was sort of the first part. I also, in the context of that, did a number of interviews with scholar practitioners who I respected, whose thoughts I wanted to hear on case studies, including Sharon, including Dr. Yugui Jun. And then from that, one of my advisors, who was a medical historian at Johns Hopkins, invited me to participate in a conference that she's organizing. That's a conference for medical historians to talk about some of this research. And sort of the latest chapter in what I'm looking at is this modern transformation of the case study being a form that has a lot more narrative and a lot more analysis to the case report. So more of the quote-unquote modern scientific format that seems to be occurring in our profession these days. So what I'm talking to these historians about is I'm explaining to them what I see as the trends right now, what's going on right now, and then going back and putting that in historical context because I've been exploring all these things straight out of reading what was going on in the Ming dynasty in terms of transformation, or what was going on in the early 20th century. Here we have this genre of the case, which some historians, some scholars say has been around since the Shang dynasty, so really ancient times. Others say has been around since the Han or the Ming, but anyway, at least a thousand years, maybe a couple thousand years, maybe more than that, has been through a lot of changes throughout its history, and we're living through another such transformation. I'm just sitting here in silence for a moment because as much as I appreciate the case studies that I've gotten all through my career, I think the cases that most stick with me are when I'm just hanging out with my friends over tea and we're noodling over our work. And I never thought of that as a case study. We're just hanging out and talking shop because it's interesting. But as we're having this conversation, it raises the question for me, what if we had, as part of our medical literature, 
as part of our teaching tools, stories that were like friends having a conversation, stories like detective stories like you were talking about earlier. It seems that there are other ways of expressing what we discover and how we work beyond the cut and dried observer and observed sort of modern format. Well, there's so much that we have to learn in our medicine. There's so much we have to memorize. And this is a great way to remember things. I mean, we wouldn't all be listening to podcasts if we didn't like people to tell us stories, you know, if that weren't a great way for us to get information and a great way for us to understand and build empathy. Yes. And somehow beyond the memorization piece, because yeah, it's brutal, the kind of memorization that we have to do, and everybody knows that. I could see how hearing a story could help with, I'm going to use air quotes here, memorization. But I think when we hear a story, something else is going on besides I'm putting a bunch of stuff in my head that hopefully I can retrieve later. There's something else that's going on. Mm-hmm. What do you suspect that is? Well, I mean, some of it may have to do with the emotional response. I started going down this path a little bit, and it was too much sort of hard psych for me, like diehard psychological theory in terms of how emotion helps us with memorization. Mm. I mean, we certainly know that with trauma. So if there's a strong emotional component, or even maybe just a, a warm, squishy feeling associated with something, it's easier for it to get encoded in our memories. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I suspect we're encoding it in more than memory. Yeah. Because it's writing on emotion. I remember years ago when I was studying some Chinese in Taiwan. And my Chinese wasn't very good, but it was like enough I could eavesdrop sometimes and understand. And I heard this young couple arguing. We're walking along a bridge. I remember the space, right? Talk about emotion. Mm-hmm. And this young couple's arguing. And guy screaming at the girl. It's like, uh, It's like, I can't stand it. I can't stand this. He was talking very directly to her. And I heard it. I heard it in Chinese. It's like, oh, yeah, I could say that in Chinese to someone if I'm really angry. I could do that. And then I thought about all the times in my life in a relationship where it mattered. And I couldn't say I can't stand this. 
because I was afraid I'd lose the relationship. In English, it is hard for me to say, I can't stand this to someone that I care about. And I might be afraid of losing because for whatever reason, those words write a kind of emotional rails. But in Chinese, because I learned it as an adult, totally free of it. I can say, I can't stand this to anyone in Chinese. Regardless of my emotional connection, I'm not afraid of losing them, but I am in English. I mean, this is a long story, but it's to underscore, I suspect, the importance of emotion and beyond like deep psychology. Mm-hmm. I think it's multifaceted and multivalented. There's a lot going on when it rides in emotion. So this brings me back to wanting to know more about this narrative medicine. I was just thinking exactly that, because my understanding is that that's a big component of narrative medicine. When they teach narrative medicine courses to physicians, they're actually often having them read fiction or poetry as a way to understand the patient's experience. And I've had this experience myself. You know, you read a really good novel about someone whose life experience is quite different than yours, and you just get inside of it in a different way than you would if you were reading the facts about them or their demographic outline. So that is one piece of it. I think there are other pieces to it, like getting doctors or clinicians to write about their experience, getting patients to write about their experience, which are other, also aspects of it, and telling these stories in other ways. And, you know, storytelling is a big part of it as well. Storytelling. So this sounds a little bit like Western conventional medicine is coming around to doing something more like what we're already really good at. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was just, Stephen Boynton gave a lecture last week. He's about to do a class on poetry. And he was making the argument that reading, it's a, an intermediate classical Chinese class, but the course material is poetry. Mm. And he was sort of going through his rationale as to why we as, as clinicians should read poetry. And one of the things he was saying was that the ability to parse a poem is a really good skill that for us as clinicians to figure all that out, because that's what we're doing in clinic when we're coming up with a diagnosis, to that kind of seeing through and trying to listen and, and really figure out what's going on. And he was saying Chinese doctors have done that for, I don't know, a thousand, two thousand years, right? That poetry, he was really emphasizing how important poetry is in Chinese culture. And he really thinks that the reading of poetry historically has made doctors better practitioners. So what if for the next week or two, we had to write a haiku for the diagnosis? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not being funny. I'm actually being serious. Yeah. I think I might just have to take this on. I mean, write my regular diagnosis. All right. But how would it look if it was a haiku? How would it sound if it was a haiku? What would be in it? Well, taking it and putting it in a different format does make you think about it differently, right? Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. Wow. I'm actually thinking about a patient I saw last night with this like tremendous gallbladder fire, but very placid on the outside. I was really confused until he was checking out and he let some of the anger escape. It was like, oh, now I see what's going on. It's like seething cauldron of fire underneath the placid lake. That's his diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you learn so much when people aren't being so guarded about their behavior, right? Well, I think I learn more too when I'm not being so guarded with my thinking. 
So tell me more about this research. I know you're headed to Israel mm-hmm. to participate in a conference. What are you going to be talking about? Can you spill some beans for us? Yeah, I'm talking about, so the conference is for historians of Chinese medicine. So a lot of the work that I've been doing on the history of case of the case study, I think is going to be very familiar to them. I guess you'd say it's in memory or they're taking some time to memorialize Charlotte Firth and Nathan Sivan, who were two giants in Chinese medical history who recently died. So I'm going to assume that my audience knows something about the historical development of the case study. So what I'm bringing to them are my observations through a historical lens of what's going on right now, and then trying to draw some analogies as to what happened in other periods in history when the case likewise went through these major transformations. And I think a big reason for those transformations was a change in authorship, which we're having now as well, a change in audience, which we're definitely having now, right? We're not just writing for ourselves, we're writing for other people, because if our cases are appearing in indexed and peer-reviewed journals, everybody can find them on the internet or PubMed or what have you. A change in naming, which I think is happening as we now sort of the term of art seems to be case reports rather than case studies and a change in format. Because with that move to the case report, we're getting a much more sort of formulaic format, much more standardized, maybe even templated. Some journals are going so far as to have a real template for a case where you just kind of plug in the various elements. And so I think hopefully the historians will find this interesting that I'm trying to write the next chapter in terms of the history of the case, really writing the the contemporary history of the case, what's happening right now. And then also to start to have a conversation based on the other things I've been researching about how this case report structure does or does not function the same way a case study has. All these things we've talked about in terms of narrative and narrative medicine I think there's some real drawbacks with the case report in terms of its didactic value, in terms of its value as a teaching and a learning tool, because it may or may not include references to classical texts or classical theory, which is a great piece of a a well-written case study, is that maybe the doctor is going to take an opportunity to explain, I use this because in the Shang Hunlin line, what have you, that's what it says, and that's what this means. and so. That's why I chose this formula. There's not necessarily space for that in what we're writing these days. So that's sort of the upshot of what I'm talking to them about. So how could we even possibly learn from it then? If it doesn't have these sort of tendrils into like where the medicine comes from and why it matters, how is it useful? I mean, it's still useful as a historical record. It's still useful to say what we're doing. I think maybe where it's the most useful is one of the areas in terms of what I explored of the function of the case is how the case professionalizes the practitioner. So I think it still does that in terms of signaling to people outside of our profession that we have a professional medicine. See, we have journals and they have standards and we can talk the talk of modern scientific research. So I think it still can do that. And I think those things are very important for the reasons we discussed, right? Mm -hmm. If you want patients and clinicians to respect what you do, you need to be able to communicate in those ways. But I do think we're losing something in terms of our own heritage and our own ability to understand where this medicine comes from. It may be losing something in terms of 
knowing for ourselves how we parse it, yeah. how we're thinking, what's going on in our own hearts and in our own minds, because East Asian medicine invites us to bring that into the clinical encounter. Well, I think I mentioned to you before, as part of my doctoral research, I did some interviews, and one of them was with Dr. Yugo Jun. These are published, if anybody wants to read them, they're published in a new journal called Convergent Points. And Dr. Yu talks about his process where he would see patients in the morning and then spend the afternoon writing up his cases and how much he learned as a physician. And that's really his chief recommendation for how people can get better is to write. Really take that time to analyze what you did, to write it. Maybe that also means, you know, going back to your, your classical texts or your textbooks and saying, why did I do that? Why did I choose those points in that herb? Oh, yeah, I'm remembering this from school. And to go back and maybe you're bringing that in as well. Mm. But he was really adamant about the role of writing in making a practitioner better. That makes sense to me. There is something that happens when we sit down and we speak honestly with ourselves through the medium of writing. Stuff that we did not know was in our mind will reveal itself if we give it an opportunity. We have to give it an opportunity. And you were talking before, Michael, about bias. Maybe that's the best way to discover what our own biases are. Yes. Rather than pretend we don't have it, just put it out there. Yep. And here's where I stand. And I mean, we shouldn't make mistakes in clinic, right? Because we can hurt people. But if you do make a mistake, to not be afraid to put it out there because it can be so instructive for others. Yes. And to ourselves. Yeah. So. I really appreciate this conversation today. It's got me thinking a whole new way about writing my case notes. I've got two sides of my mind going. One side is write this as if it was going to be read in a courtroom, right? Like cover your ass basically. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that. Fair enough. This other part of my mind saying, write it like the story it is with a haiku as a diagnosis. Maybe I'd do both. I love the possibility of seeing deeper into a case because I'm not attempting to stand outside of it, but because I'm dead in the center of it and I'm looking around and describing what I see. It's really, really powerful, Sarah. Thank you for the nudge to take a look that way. Well, it, like so many other things, it's the yin and the yang, right? We need both of it. Mm -hmm. And if I have an objective or an agenda in doing this research and in having conversations like the one we're having today, it's to achieve that balance. We can do exactly what you said. We can do the bulletproof reporting, or we can write to the standards of the journal, or we can communicate with people outside of our profession. But let's not lose sight of all the richness that we have here and all the difference. And there's a reason why I think UNESCO has designated Chinese medicine as a world treasure, right? We are a treasure. And we need to cultivate that as well and pass it along, convey that to the next generation of practitioners. And what would the next generation of practitioners like to read? A cut and dry case or a detective murder story? It depends on why they're reading it. There was a historian whose work I read, and, and I'll share this with you as well. I think his name was Robert Himes. And he had this idea, and I actually, when I did a presentation on this, I made a slide of this because it was so visual. He talked about the chain of text to practice to text. So what that is, is you read something in a book, 
or a case study or a journal or, you know, whatever it is. And you think, wow, that's a great idea. I'm going to try that in clinic. Mm. And then you go and you try it and you see if it works, if it doesn't work, what you feel about it once you kind of try it out for yourself. And then hopefully you go back and you write about your experience using this thing that you got from this book or this text or whatever it is. And then hopefully someone else reads what you wrote and they do the same thing, right? And so you kind of leapfrog down through history. And we're part of a tradition that does that. Yes. In fact, we've argued with each other over the centuries, which is kind of cool when you think about it. Yeah. So this research of yours, is it available for people to see or read or get their hands on? How would they find out more about what you're doing? And, and especially if they're interested in what we've been talking about today, how would they get in touch with you? So they can reach out to me directly. As I said, the interviews have been published. So those are available from Convergent Points on their website. This latest version of my research, I'll be shopping around for publication and I can, by the time this episode airs, hopefully I'll have a home for it and I can let everybody know. Great. We can always put that on the show notes page and update it if need be. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for the perspective that you bring on this. I would love to read more murder mystery type case studies. I keep saying this throughout our conversation, but I love the idea of something that is both fun and informative. I think it would be really useful. Yeah. Well, maybe once I finish this project, I'll write a murder mystery in the form of a Chinese medicine case study. Well, there's evidently some precedent for it. So uh, I look forward to reading that. Great. Thank you so much, Michael. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much, Sarah. I'm reminded from this conversation that there is the work that we do, and then there is the meaning that we make of it. There is a place for objectivity and room for that which is fleeting, slippery, enlivened, and resistant to being pinned down. The power of story and the profound impact of how people make sense of their lives of their health and their illness, of the experiences they meet that changes them. All of this is also within the scope of our work, and it's within our scope because we are looking at the whole person, not a singular part. We are looking both at, air quotes here, things, but also, and maybe more importantly, the connections between them. Capturing that in our clinical notes that's a challenge. And I look forward to more conversations like the one that we had today. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.